right. So this morning we will be in Colossians. We'll be in the first two verses, actually, of Colossians. So let's uh, let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to study your word today. Thank you that uh, you are a great God, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would um, just be with us now as we uh, meet to receive food from your holy word. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Colossians. This is a little bit of a lane change for me. Some of you may know that um, I had intended to do Colossians in the summer and do Esther, a study on Esther. So if you remember me saying that, um, there's a reason I decided to change lanes. My job as a Christian preacher is to preach Jesus to you every Sunday from all of Scripture. So wherever we are in the Bible, we're going to be preaching about Jesus. And the way to preach Jesus from the book of Esther, Esther is a book that doesn't even mention the name of God. So how do you preach Jesus from Esther? The way, the only way, in my opinion, is to see that the book of Esther actually uses the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel to show you that Esther and Mordecai are like new David savior figures for the people of Israel. And there's a lot there. Which means you kind of need to know 1 and 2 Samuel if you're going to preach Jesus from Esther. So I said, you know what? Because not all of us are familiar with the stories in First and Second Samuel, um, eventually we'll preach First and Second Samuel, and then we'll preach Esther. But I'm not ready for a sermon series through First and Second Samuel. That's a very big chunk of your Old Testament, and uh, I'm excited to do that someday, but not yet. Maybe perhaps next year, after we after we leave the New Testament, we're going to be in the New Testament for quite a few months. Definitely through the summer and into the fall. And then perhaps um, we'll go back to the Old Testament. When we do, we'll hit Samuel. It would be a very um, fun, fast-paced, Jesus-centered study. There's a lot of stories in Samuel. Uh, but I think Colossians, I just really felt strongly that that's, that's what we should start. So why Colossians? Two reasons. The first half of Colossians is all about the bigness of Jesus. And if our little church here, our little church family is going to accomplish anything for Jesus in this town and in this world, and if we are going to have our lives impacted by the Lord Jesus, and in a way that makes us want to bring our whole lives into obedience to Him, then we have to be absolutely stunned and captivated by the strength and the beauty and the wisdom and the kindness of our Savior, Jesus the Messiah. And so that's what Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, all the way up through the beginning of chapter 2 is about. So through those sections, we will be glorying together in a big Jesus who is absolutely amazing and worth giving your whole life to. Then, the second half of Colossians, starting in chapter 2, verse 6, 
Paul says, therefore, just as you have received Jesus as Lord, and the whole section up to that is about receiving Jesus as your Lord. Who is this Lord that you've received? He says that in verse 6, so walk in him. Live for him. And the rest of the letter is about living for Jesus. So who Jesus is and living for Jesus. That's what I want us to look at in the days to come. But Colossians doesn't start right off by talking about who Jesus is. It starts off just like you start any email or letter. It starts with a greeting in verses 1 and 2. And it's the greeting that we're going to look at together this morning. So if you have your Bible open, listen along. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning. Uh, so it might sound different if you have the NIV, but we'll, we'll explain some of those differences. Um, Paul, the letter starts, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this morning, um, what I'd like to do these verses is something we haven't done for a while. We're going to actually camp out in just two verses. A small passage. A lot of times we're doing big themes across the whole of the Bible, but we're going to squeeze a lot out of these two verses. Oftentimes, you might be tempted to read an introduction to a letter just like you read through a, a dear so-and-so in an email. Or in a written letter to you. Just skim right through it. And what, what's this about? Get to the main content. But this morning, we're going to not skip past these two verses. We're going to milk them for all they're worth. And we're going to see three main things. First, we're going to look at who was Paul? Who was the Apostle Paul? Second, who were the Colossians? And third, who is God? In these verses. So, who is Paul? Who are the Colossians? And who is God? So, I'll read these verses again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So who is Paul? Who are the Colossians? Who is God? First, who is Paul? Well, look right there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, along with Timothy, our brother. So the first thing that we're told about Paul is that he's an apostle. Now, the word apostle is a word that inherently means sent one. It's somebody who has been sent on a task with a message. In the case of Paul, he's been sent on his mission. He's been apostled, sent out by the Lord Jesus himself. And that task, and that's the task that he's been sent out on, what's, what's he sent for? It's actually described for us in the New Testament letter of Acts, or book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord says this to Paul. He says, 
or about Paul. He says, he, this man, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, Acts 9 verse 15, and kings and the children of Israel. So God chose Paul as his special instrument to get the word about Jesus before kings, before Gentiles, and before Israel. Which explains the second thing about Colossians that we see. He is apostle through or by the will of God. So if you've ever read the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, um, it's an amazing conversion story. Paul, called Saul there, you know what he was doing? Murdering people. Murdering good people. Followers of Jesus. He was locking them up in prison and trying to get their death sentences. Because they were following Jesus. He's basically a terrorist. Okay? A Jewish terrorist. He's terrorizing Christians. And he's on his way to a small city called Damascus to terrorize more Christians. And on his way, he has a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus himself. And that vision changed Paul's life forever. You've got to remember this. When you read the New Testament letters, Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Remember, this is someone who murdered Christians for his day job before he encountered the risen Jesus. How do you switch like that to the point where you're willing to die for the people you were trying to kill last week? Like, now you're going to give your life to them and for them and to Jesus. And you're going to travel all over the world being locked up. He's actually writing this letter to us from Colossians. He's writing from jail. Why? Because he's preaching Jesus. And he gets locked up. I mean, this Paul's story is absolutely amazing. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. How do we know it was God's will? Because God was the one who gave him a 180. He's riding his horse on his way to murder more Christians and lock them up. And a light shines from heaven, knocks him off his horse. And he's blinded and he hears a voice from heaven. And it's Jesus. And he realizes the tomb is empty. The throne at the right hand of the Father is not empty. I've been wrong. Jesus is king. So Paul, when he became convinced that Jesus was the Christ, which means God's anointed king, it changed everything for him. One of the most brilliant rabbis of Israel became one of the mighty leaders of the faith, a sent one, an apostle. And he's writing this letter. He's writing it along with a young man who's with him, who's his traveling companion. A man who Paul had talked much about the faith to. This young man's name was Timothy. Now when we read young man, I don't think it means he's 15. Um, maybe he was in his 30s. He's a younger man. And notice what Paul calls Timothy in verse 1. 
calls him my brother. Why does he call him my brother? Oh, well, they're related. Calls him brother. No. Um, you might know somebody who regularly calls people brother out of habit. You know somebody who just bros everybody. What's up, bro? You're like, he's not even he's not even your friend, and you just broed him. But all right, that's okay. I'm not saying it's wrong, but. Paul means something really specific here when he calls Timothy, um, actually doesn't say my brother, he says our brother, our brother. Even though Paul and Timothy are completely unrelated biologically, Paul views Timothy as his brother. And because he says our brother, he views Timothy as related to the Colossians as well, even though he's never even met them. He's never even, he said our brother Timothy. Who is he? He's our brother. The brother you've never met. Paul views people he's never even met. We'll see this in a second. Paul's not even met these guys yet. He views them as family because of Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now let's look at what Paul writes next. He writes, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Which brings us to point two this morning, who were the Colossians? Well, the Colossians, so we've seen who was Paul. He's apostle, sent by God miraculously to preach the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. The Colossians, they were a mostly non-Jewish church. It's a Gentile church, just like us. In the ancient city of Colossae in the Roman Empire. And this church was not a church started by the apostle Paul. In fact, Paul had never seen these people or visited this church. He's writing a letter of Colossians to Christians he's never even met. It, instead, the church was started by a man named Epaphras. You see that in chapter 1, verse 7. Who Paul had led to the Lord years before. We can read about that in Colossians 1, verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, Paul says that the Colossians understood the grace of God in truth. So how did they come to understand about the grace, the kindness of God in a true way? Well, verse 7 and 8, you, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in or by the Spirit. So everything that the Colossians know about the Apostle Paul and about the gospel that Paul preached and about the good news of Jesus, everything they know about that comes from Epaphras. And everything Paul knows about the Colossian church has also come from Epaphras. Epaphras is now with Paul and he's given Paul a message about the Colossian church. These people love Jesus. Let me tell you about them. God really is working in their hearts. But Paul and Epaphras are really concerned about them. And that's one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter. They're worried. Paul is worried about these people that he's never even met. Because they're his brothers. Your brother is in trouble. If your sister is in trouble, do you worry about them? 
You ask for prayer for them. Well, this is Paul's family, his spiritual family, and he's worried about them. And so is Epaphras, because, why? False teachers, liars, people teaching wrong things have snuck into the church. We'll learn more about bad teachers and about what they were teaching in the next few weeks. But for now, you can look with me just at some of the verses in chapter 2 where we see Paul's concern for the false teaching. In 2 verse 4. You see 2 verse 4? Paul says, I don't want anybody to delude you, lead you astray. Delude is not really the word we use. Some of your translations might have something different. But with persuasive arguments that are wrong, they don't, I don't want them to lead you astray. In 2 verse 8, he says they're to watch out lest someone take them captive with deceitful ways of thinking. In 2 verse 18, skipping down a little bit, he tells them, don't let anyone take away your future reward in heaven by getting you to reject the narrow way of Jesus. Heresy, or false teaching, is a big concern in Colossians, and in all Paul's letters, actually, and it's a big concern even today, especially with the rise of the internet. It's crazy. But it's like, if Paul was writing today, you could hear him saying, I hear that you're watching this guy on TV, and I'm really concerned. Because everything he says is not in line with the gospel. Or, I hear that you are really into this new podcast or YouTube channel. And it's so helpful and informative, but I want you to know that there's some deceptive philosophies in there. That they're sneaky. They don't lie right on the surface. It's not like these guys show up and say, my YouTube channel is not in line with the gospel. But, I have a detour to Jesus that I'm going to take you on. It, it, they don't come across like that. They come across as winsome. As, oh, Paul is writing to clear things up to these people. Now, they don't have YouTube, don't get me wrong, that wasn't invented yet. But they had false teachers, probably nice people, sincere people that they liked. That had slipped into the church. Or maybe they were a part of the church all along. And they had started to teach things that were wrong. And we're going to be looking at some of those things in days to come. So that's part of why Paul's writing. Now, look at what he calls these Colossians. Verse 2. He said, to the saints. Literally it says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Who are at Colossae. The newer NIV translation um, often puts holy people for saints. Do you have that? Holy people? Um, that's because that's what the word means. Saint means a holy person. So that's okay. It's a good translation. Um, and for brothers, the newest version of the NIV puts the word sisters as well. You, maybe your Bible says brothers and sisters. And that's okay. That's what the word brothers really stands for. Um, you ever walk into a room, I, I think I've probably done this from the pulpit, said, what's up guys? You're all girls and guys. Like the word guys in English can, has come to mean, in certain contexts, boys and girls, men and women, 
old and young. You can say, well, that's in, in that ancient world, that's kind of what brothers was. Like, you could say brothers, and it meant everybody. The, the brethren, the church, the people of God. It's just a cultural way of referring to everybody. So that's why a lot of our newer translations, because it means that, they try to make sure you mean, Paul's not just talking to the men in the church. He's not, like, excluding the women. No, the Bible has a very high view of women. Remember what we said last week? Women found Jesus. The men were hiding, afraid in a room. And the men who wrote the letters of the New Testament were unashamed. To, well, maybe they were ashamed, we don't know. But they, 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 were not, they didn't hold back and tell you that. Mary was the first to see the Lord. Okay? So, brothers, and it includes women here. And so Paul writes to these brothers and sisters who he's never met, and he calls them saints and faithful brothers. And not only are they located at a specific location, a GPS location called Colossae, they are also located in Christ. Do you see that? They're not just at Colossae, they are in Christ, in the Messiah. Now, the way the sentence is set up, faithful brothers is probably unpacking what saints means here. Faithful brothers and sisters is explaining a little further what Paul means by saints. Now, I have made a big deal about this from the pulpit before, but I just want to say this again really clearly. If you are in Christ, if you that means if you are trusting Jesus with a faithful faith, with a trust in Jesus that leads you to actually truly seek to follow him with your life, then you are a saint. You are a saint. Just like the Colossians. A saint, when I preached on what a saint was back in the summer, we said, you may remember, you were there or you watched it online, a saint is somebody who is cleansed by God from their sin, who is claimed by God as his own, and who is called to follow the Lord Jesus. Claimed, cleansed, and called. A saint belongs to Jesus. A saint is not some super extra spiritual, super good human person whose feet don't touch the ground. A saint is a holy Christian. Many of the people that the Catholic Church has officially said are saints are saints. Just like your mom who prays for a lot of people. And you, who, for all your sin, want to follow Jesus and live for him. A saint is someone who's been cleansed by the blood of Christ, called to belong to Jesus, and claimed as God's possession, part of his family. And Paul is writing to saints who he's never met, and he still calls them saints, because they are belonging to Jesus. They are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, at its core, it means you're connected to Jesus by faith. If you trust in Jesus, you don't just live in Granville or in Whitehall. I don't just live at 20 Medellin Street. I live in Christ. I live and move and breathe in the realm 
where the Lord Jesus is king. King of all. That's what Christ means. You ever heard the word Jesus Christ and thought it was kind of like Joel Douglas or Joel Aubrey? It's like maybe his like last name or something. It's not. It's a title. Like Mr. President is a title, right? Calling Jesus the Christ, which Paul does constantly, and the New Testament writers do, is like saying he's God's king. Jesus, God's king. Jesus, the Christ. And you are in the king, which means you are in his realm. You are part of his kingdom. You are connected to him and to his rule. Which means if you are in him, then you are called to live out every single minute of your existence as if you are a Christian in Christ. Being in Christ is true of you wherever you are. You are a believer, if you are a saint, then you are in Christ when you go to the store. You are in Christ when you're at work. You are in Christ when you pray. You are in Christ when you sing. You are in Christ when you do whatever it is that you do with your time, with your body, when no one is looking or noticing. You are in Christ. The true Christian, he lives and moves and breathes as one who is and will always be connected to Jesus Christ, the King. His love covers our sins, and his grace is with us, his spirit is with us. We are in him. We are the faithful ones, the ones who trust him. And we are family. The reason Paul calls the Colossians who he has never met, brothers, and Timothy, who's not related to them, our brother, is because everyone in Christ has one father. That's the third and final thing I'll point out from these verses. Who is God? In verse 2, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. God is our Father. Remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I'll ask you, what comes into your mind when you think of God? Do you immediately think of a policeman in the skies, watching the traffic on earth, ready to blow the whistle if humans are having too much fun or getting a little out of control? Or do you think of God, when you close your eyes and you just think the word God, do you think of a boss? In the skies, telling everybody what to do and how to run the world? Or do you think of a creator making things, making the world? What is the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of God? Well, I truly believe that as Christians, the first thing that we should work to have come into our minds when we think of God is the word Father. Not only is God eternally the father of our Lord Jesus. Like, in other words, even before God created the world, he was a father. God has eternally been the father of the son. Jesus. For all ages and all eternity. But the father is also our father. He's our father by creation. We are his sons. 
Not because we're somehow biologically connected to God. No. If we were biologically connected to God, we would be divine ourselves. And the Bible is totally against that concept. Humans are not gods. Nor are we an extension of the divine life. This is where um, so many Eastern religions go wrong. It's where Mormonism goes wrong. We are not the spirit children of a heavenly father who likes to play loose with the ladies. This is not what's going on here. That's pagan. We are divine children by direct creation, made from dust, given life by God's Spirit. We are called sons and daughters of God by virtue of the role we humans have been created for as well, to image God as priestly kings on earth. Lots more could be said about that, but we are sons and daughters of the Father. God is our Father, and there's two things Paul wants to come into the Colossians' mind when they think of God as Father. He doesn't want them conjuring up a view of a grumpy old man in the sky just yelling at his out-of-control kids. And he doesn't want them to think of a father holding a big stick, ready to womp on the disobedient. He wants them to know, first and foremost, that the Father is the giver of grace and the giver of peace. Do you see that there in verse 2? Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Let's look at each one in turn. First, God is a gracious Father. Grace, at its core, is freely given love. It's a kindness shown to others. Grace is not something that's worked for. It's not something given to those who are a part of a special, deserving class of humans. Like, boy, they're really doing well in life. God's definitely going give, to give them some grace. No, grace is the unearned love of our Heavenly Father that He delights to pour out on humans, even humans who have rejected Him. Ephesians 2.8, Paul says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So to show someone grace, if you were to show someone, show someone grace, it should show them great kindness, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. So, you could show someone grace. Imagine, um, imagine I went over to your yard and raped your yard. I went over to Carol's yard, and I just wanted to bless her, and I, I raped her yard for her, okay, for three hours. And she came out, and she graced me with some ice cream. Not because I deserve it. I wasn't working for that. I just wanted to bless her, but, but wow, that was a grace, a kindness. Now, I'm not telling you that's what you should do here. <laughs> but can you imagine, okay, right? But uh, on the opposite, imagine that, uh, you know, Ben got a new vehicle and decided to uh, do a donut in my front yard. Not, not that Ben would ever do that. And, and I decided to grace him by overlooking it and not gossiping about it. Okay? And just, just showing him love, regardless, and kindness. Grace 
is kindness and favor shown to people, to others, regardless of who they are or whether they deserve it or not. Okay? So in the Bible, God shows grace to humans. He is the God of grace. It is a disposition of kindness towards others, regardless of their status or condition, rich or poor, old or young. Grace. Grace marks our Father. He is the God of all grace. He's a Father who loves to pour out the riches of His kindness on all who have become a part of His family. And you become part of the family of the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father is the giver of grace. And he is the giver of peace. Here the word peace, it's connected to the Hebrew concept of shalom. You ever heard somebody greet somebody else by saying shalom? Shalom. It's the idea of wholeness and completeness in all of life. Shalom is the mending of broken things. It's the healing of wounds. It's the easing of pain. It's the restoration of loss. It's fixing relational brokenness. It's peace. Shalom. And it comes from the Father. The Father is a Father who brings shalom to His family, both now and ultimately forever in the new creation. Have you ever experienced or seen a Father who brings the opposite of shalom into the life of his family. All of us can break shalom in a situation. Okay? Last night, riding home, I spoke in a very impatient way to some of my children. I broke the shalom in the van. Okay? I was not a father of grace and peace, for which I am sorry. And ask for forgiveness. Right? Humans, we are imperfect. But God is the father of grace and peace. He is the father who brings Shalom. Whatever your experience of an earthly father has been, when the Heavenly Father walks into the room, grace and peace follow to his children. And that is what Paul wants us to think of when we think of God. He's a father of grace and peace. That's why he starts the letter with grace and peace to you. And he ends the letter with grace be with you. If you look at the last phrase of the letter in chapter 4 at the end. Grace is coming to you from the Father as Paul writes about Jesus and how to live for Jesus. And at the very end, he says, I'm going to leave you with grace. Grace be with you as you close this letter. Grace brackets the whole letter. The kindness of the Father. Now, 
one of the tragedies of the false teaching that the Colossians were getting exposed to is that it was getting in the way of them experiencing the grace and peace of God through Jesus. The false teachings were twisting their view of God into a distorted God who was ungracious. And that's what false teaching does. Why is it so dangerous? Because it twists your view of God. And it will ruin your faith. Satan is always wanting to make God look like the bad guy. Or a permissive father. He doesn't care enough to make rules for his kids. Oh, you can run in the street if you want. No, good father. That's what God is. And so, that's what Paul is writing to convince the Colossians of. is the goodness and grace of God through Christ. So, a couple applications as we close our time. First, the church of Christ is a family. If you today say, I trust in Jesus, I'm in Christ, then you and I are family. Real family. But, it takes a conscious choice, just as Paul had to choose to say, Timothy, our brother, and say to the, the brethren in Colossae, whom he's never met, as Christians, we must choose to live as if fellow Christians are family. We must choose to live and act and speak like blood-bought family, in other words, the family that Jesus died to win you, is real family. We must choose to open our lives to each other, to our Christian family, and to embrace family. As a pastor, as a church planter, I have no interest in creating an event on Sunday mornings that happens at 10.30 and is over by 12. An event that you just make time for if it fits in your schedule. Um, you can get an event on TV or on YouTube with far more lights and fanfare and maybe even better preaching. You know, like anyone in the world could be your pastor on the internet. Maybe they dress better, be better looking, right? Whatever. If, you, if it's an event that we want, that's not what we're trying to do. No. Sunday morning is important, but it's far more than that. This church, we want to be a family. We want to be a family, the family of Jesus. We want to share our lives with each other, just like the early church did. And so, friends, if you are in Christ, we invite you to be part of the family, the family of Jesus. At New Creation, we, we do membership. Um, membership is just making sure, it's kind of our way of making sure that you're part of, you, you actually trust in Jesus, that we're on the same page about who Jesus is. Because over the last four years, we've had a lot of people come and go, and we don't really know where they were with Jesus. We try to figure it out, but it just kind of makes sure we're all on the same page. And we would love to welcome you in to the family of Jesus through that process, if that's something you feel God is leading you towards. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of Jesus. And if you want to be a part of the family of Jesus, we'll share what we have with you. And there's a reason Holly and I wanted to move into the village. 
be family. Family of Jesus. We have the same daddy. We have one Lord. The same Lord. We have the same faith. We have the same baptism. We have the same bread and cup we eat. We have the same Bible. We're family. We're not family with everyone in this world. We're family with those who trust Jesus and follow him. This is who we are. We are the people of the king. We are old and we are young. Some of us have more possessions, some less. Some of us are married, some single. Some have children, some don't. And yet, we are brothers and sisters. If you don't have kids or kids at your house, enjoy mine. They're part of your family. And friends, um, sometimes when we get together with people who are very unlike us in the family, we can feel like I don't I don't maybe fit. I don't fit in this church. But you know what? As the pastor, I can say that sometimes I don't feel like I fit in this church. I'm different. We're all different. Feeling like we fit is a feeling that's a bit arbitrary, actually. Sometimes you click with people, and sometimes you don't. And it's completely natural to want to hang out with people that we click with and people who don't bother us in any way. And that's not necessarily wrong um, to want to spend time with people that we are like. But that's what our whole culture is based on. Like goes with like. Grades go with the same grades. The, the, if, you, if you want to be a part of a club, you, you find people who want a club like you. You know, the golf club, the bowling club, the fishing club, the hunters hang together. Like goes with like. That's natural, but supernatural. That's what the church is to be. A supernatural community of the spirit where we actually want to be family with people who are not like us. Not like us politically. Not like us physically. Not like us in our interests and talents and gifts and abilities, and yet who are citizens of the same kingdom. And as we grow to be family with people who are different than us, it will grow our capacity to love like Jesus, who gave his life for people who were not even remotely like him. Tax collectors and sinners. That he wanted to help learn to walk in his love. So in Christ, the stranger becomes my brother. And through Christ, the strange brother, that guy, the strange brother or sister, can become my close friend and my brother. Right? We, we become family. But it's a choice to walk this road and to open up our lives to others and to let them in. We have the same father, even though we are all very different. Every single one of us. The second thing I want to just bring out as I close is, is that God is a gracious Father who brings shalom through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So, I ask you, what is your view of God? 
a God of grace and peace, or a cruel father who makes arbitrary rules that don't make sense to you. And this world, this world is terribly broken. It is the opposite of a world of peace at this time. And God, when he comes into your life, he doesn't fix all your problems. A simple example of this would be that all of us will die. But he promises he will never leave us. And even in our death, he will be with us. And because of Jesus, he will raise us. Even our death is not the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we can call you gracious Father. I thank you that for everyone who trusts in Jesus, we are family. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to just increase our longing to be family with each other at this church. That we would be brothers and sisters for each other in this, this walk of life. That we would meet each other's needs, that we would pray for each other, that you would create a community of love that like the ancient Christians so long ago, their neighbors would look at them and say, see how these Christians love one another. Help us, Lord, because we are broken. And we need you to help us love. Thank you so much for the love that we have experienced here. And I just pray that it will continue to increase. And uh, thank you so much for uh, the cup that we are about to receive and the bread that we are about to receive signs of Jesus' body broken for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.